This is Come and See by Father Ron Baird for March 27, 2011. The Gospel is taken from the book of John, chapter 4, verses 5 through 42. We rejoice in our sufferings. That's what Paul said in today's epistle. First question is, who's his we he's talking about, right? You all rejoice when you're suffering? He's talking about Christians. We rejoice in our sufferings. It seems kind of antithetical to what we should do, doesn't it? It seems we're suffering, we should be miserable. You know, and, and, and you don't, you're not happy when you're suffering. I mean, that doesn't make sense. Why would you rejoice? The, the actual word is, we give glory when we are suffering. Doesn't seem like something you do either, does it? Well, let me tell you a story from the gospel today about someone who rejoices in their suffering. It says Jesus was traveling from um, up in the Galilee down to Jerusalem, and he takes the shortcut through Samaria, which is the most direct route. And about halfway down, uh, he comes to Jacob's well, which is in Sychar. And when he gets there, it's about noon. And it says that he was really tired. Now, if you've ever walked in the desert, you can imagine that he would be tired. And the disciples decide to go into town to get some meat, it says. I assume they're going to McDonald's or, or Kentucky Fried Chicken or something. And uh, they're going to bring something back. And so he sits down at Jacob's well. Now, he doesn't have a, a bucket or you know, anything to dip, you know, to, to lower into the well, and they don't leave anything there. You have to bring your own. And so he's just sitting there. And a woman comes up and says, and he says, give me a drink. Well, this is astounding to the woman because she's a Samaritan and he's a Jew. And one, Jewish men don't talk to women who are alone, you know, Orthodox Jewish men. And two is that she's a Samaritan, which means that she's unclean. And even more so, in order for him to drink, he has to drink from her vessels, which are certainly unclean. You know, they're not at all kosher. I mean, so the woman is puzzled by all this. I mean, how can this be? And we have the whole story about, you know, if you, you know, said, how can you, a Jew, ask of me a, a drink? Samaritan. And so he says, if you knew who it was that was asking you, you would ask him for a drink, and he would give you the water that springs to eternal life so that you would never, ever thirst again. And she says, this is a good deal. Now, this is the first clue about suffering that we see in the story today. Why does that suddenly strike a chord with her? Well, because the time of day that she is there is noon, which is very unusual. You know, so there wasn't anybody else around, and that's because the women in town would always go to the well along with the children in the morning and get their water for the day and go home. She hadn't been there. It seems a little strange, doesn't it? She didn't go with everybody else. Here's a, a single woman going off by herself to show up here. And suddenly she likes the idea of not having to go back to the well ever again, which is a clue that there's something amiss in the story. And they go on and have an exchange, and, and she, you know, she says, give this to me. And so he says, okay, Call your husband. 
It seems like a non sequitur, doesn't it? Call your husband. You know, what would we say? We'd say, he's at work. <laughs> I, mean, I don't need him. Why should I call him? I mean, who knows what we would say about it. But he says, call your husband. And you can almost feel in the story how she probably, her eyes look down and says, well, I, I have no husband. And he says, that's right. Matter of fact, you had five husbands. And the guy you're shacking up with now isn't your husband. Now, there are a couple of interesting things about suffering in that. We could believe that he was condemning her because that's what we would think about somebody who's had five husbands and is shacking up with somebody. I mean, we go, what's the matter with them? And that's the way society looks at the world today. And yet, it seems that Jesus is more dealing with the pain in her life that she's had five husbands. It also really rubs against the grain of all those who believe that divorce is not possible because once you're married, it's indissoluble. And so once married, you're always married because how could she have had five husbands if you can only be married once? I mean, it wouldn't make much sense if you think about it. Obviously, Jesus is dealing with the pain in her life of, of five divorces. And what's even more astounding about it, though, is that this brokenness in her life, the sin, he immediately hits upon. And she does what any good Anglican would do. She changes the subject to liturgy. <laughs> well, you all say that, you know, you're supposed to worship God in Jerusalem, but we say you should worship him. Sort of like, well, we believe that, you know, when you enter the pew, you should bow or genuflect before you go in. Well, we believe, you know... Let's, let's talk about liturgy, anything about me personally. The reason why I know she's an Anglican is because if you know, she didn't want to talk about gen- brand name sins. She would have dealt with generic sin, you know, because we're all sinners, right? But, but she didn't want, to, he didn't want to talk about brand name sins, the real brokenness. And so she wants to change the subject. And so Jesus plays along with that for a little bit. And what's amazing about it, though, is that the woman, as she's discussing this thing about spirit and truth, because what he's now done is he's moved it not from, well, we're Jews and we're better than you and we have the right answer and you have the wrong answer. But he's going to say, you know, the day's coming when nobody's going to worship you know, God on the earth. God seeks those who worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, we know something because we've read the Gospel of John before. What is truth? Well, first of all, who else asked that question? The question I just asked. Pilate asked it. Jesus didn't answer him, by the way, because truth is Jesus. Remember what he said? I am the way, the truth, and the life. The day will come when those who worship will worship the Father and the Holy Spirit and in the Son. And so, suddenly, her eyes are open to the possibility of what could truly be for her life. And she goes back into town, and she tells everybody. Now, picture this, if you will. Run back to your subdivision and tell everybody about the worst and most heinous sins of your life. I met this guy. Now, they all knew because it was a small town. But... You know, I met this guy and he knew all these wretched things that I'd done. You know, you got to come and see him. 
Yeah, that seems a little weird. Uh, She was excited about it. So excited, in fact, that they came. They wanted to know. Now, if it had been me, I would have been thinking, well, if he told her about all her wretched sins, how do I know he's not going to start telling everybody there about all my wretched sins? I mean, can we stick with yours? Because I'm happy as long as we're talking about your sins. And yet what's amazing is that she was rejoicing in her suffering. She had had five husbands and been divorced five times. She was now living with some guy. Commitment seemed an impossibility to her. And Jesus had pointed that out, and yet she was rejoicing because she had found something greater than the suffering. And what's even more amazing about it is that the town people eventually found that too. Because they said, it's not just because you told us anymore. Now we have heard for ourselves. Imagine that, a whole town excited about the fact that somebody pointed out their sins and knew them. What could possibly be exciting about that? Well, pointing out sins isn't exciting unless forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration can be part of it. Because there's a lot to rejoice about our sins if we can let them be gone, if we can let them be a part of our past and not a part of our present and our future, if we can let go of the guilt that has been inflicted upon us mostly by us. And so she rejoices. And so Paul, you know, echoing these same kind of sentiments, says, because he certainly knows about sin, he was persecuting the Lord's disciples. And he says, we rejoice in our sufferings. He knows a lot about it. He gets thrown in jail regularly, gets beaten up, mobs throw him out of town. I mean, There weren't very many towns that Paul actually went into that he didn't get run out on a rail. I mean, gives you an idea how popular he was. And yet he says, we rejoice in our suffering because suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. Character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint. My favorite lines of all the scriptures. Now, that's the opposite of what we try to do today, isn't it? You know, what do we do when we suffer? You're suffering from a headache. What do you do? Why do you take an aspirin? Get rid of it, you know. If um, we're suffering because somebody has wronged us, what do we do? Get angry, blame either them or us. I mean, we rarely are able to move beyond that because what we really want is to stop the pain. That's a natural human reaction. We want to stop the pain. It's why, you know, so many of us, present company included, don't really like to exercise. It doesn't feel good, does it? You know, I hear these people that say, oh, man, I ran five miles this morning and just felt great. And I go... You so-and-so. I mean, (laughs) I wish it felt great. I mean, I would love that. Wouldn't it be wonderful if it just felt great? It never feels great to me. It feels horrible. And we, we want to avoid it because we want to avoid pain. And yet, in reality, it's in the avoidance of pain 
that the consequences are far greater in that case, that the other things are heaped upon us. And although we get a short-term sort of fix to our pain and it feels better, what really ends up happening is that in the long run, we're killing ourselves. We see it over and over again in, in drug abuse with people who are addicted. You know, we, we need the drug because the drug can somehow or other help the pain of life go away. You know, when I'm feeling euphoric, I don't feel that pain. Life feels good. But the problem with it is, is that one, the drug wears off and you need more. And an even greater problem with it is, is that while the drug is in your system, it is damaging your body and doing things that will have long-term consequences that, that you think, oh, I feel fine, that can't be, I think I hurt my liver. That's going to be a problem. And even more so, it damages our relationships with the people around us. But we keep going back to avoid the pain. Ultimately, because we do not believe that we can survive without it. We do not believe that we can, that suffering truly can produce endurance. My nephew is a uh, cross-country runner. Now he's into, I don't know what you call it exactly, but it's kind of crazy. He runs like 50 and 100 mile races. And he runs eight miles every day, winter, summer, in, in the hills of southern Ohio, southeastern Ohio, if you can imagine. And I said, are you crazy? <laughs> And he said, well, I didn't start running eight miles a day. I said, well, how much did you start running? He said, yeah, a mile. And I said, then I went to two, and then I went to three, and then I went to four. And I said, so it's like building up your stamina? And he said, yeah. I said, doesn't it hurt? He goes, that's when you know that you're building the endurance. When the burning in your legs starts, you know that you're, you're getting to the limits of what you can really do. And you know that you're pushing that envelope slightly further than it was before. Suffering produces endurance. And it, the endurance produces character, which is incredibly important because one of the great problems in life about pain, whether it be emotional pain, relational pain, you know, financial pain, um, or physical pain, all kinds of things that we are trying to avoid, are because we don't really believe that we can overcome it. We don't believe that we can get through that to a better day on the other side. We just want it to go away now. And so what we find is that the endurance, when this happens over and over again, and we can see the product of what happens as a result of our being able to bear the suffering and rejoice in it for the opportunity to produce endurance, we learn that we're able, we are capable of getting beyond this. We are empowered. We are no longer slaves to the pains that inflict us, whatever they may be. That's character. That's real character. That's real integrity. It's the ability that other people can't hurt me, not because, you know, they're, I'm somehow an egotistical or something, but, but because I don't give that kind of power away to people. Drugs can't destroy me because I won't give my body over to a euphoria that's false or to an alcohol you know, binge that's, that's a fake kind of thing. 
we learn that in and of ourselves, we are worthy because we are children of God. And that we can endure anything. And what character produces is hope. Because the moment we begin to realize that we can endure, that we can make it through these things, that we can weather the tough times, what we begin to do is look beyond them, don't we? We begin to see that perhaps in a new day, in a new possibility, we can come to a better place. That, that life will be better. That the pain of the withdrawal from the addiction, the day will come when it will go away. That the anxiety that I suffer from someday will pass. That the brokenness of my marriage or whatever will ultimately end and I can find a new life and a new spouse and I can have happiness again. That there is hope. Because I believe that. And then he tells us the promise. Hope does not disappoint us. Because God's love has been given to us. That's why Christians rejoice in the sufferings. Because they know that what doesn't kill me will make me stronger. And what makes me stronger will make me better. And what makes me better will make me hopeful for a new day. For me and for my children and for my children's children all the way down the road. And so we rejoice. There's an opportunity. You look at your pains and sufferings that way, as opportunities, as ability, you know, the, the opportunity to, to push through it, to push that envelope back a little bit. Because ultimately, that's what enables you to rejoice. Is when suffering becomes not an inconvenience or a debilitating thing that has been imposed upon you, but when suffering becomes that which is an opportunity to help you grow and to be the, the very creature of God that he made you to be and child of God that he wants you to be, suddenly there's true hope. And in that we can give glory. You know, a lot of times in life we'd really like to be able to do everything without a problem, wouldn't we? You ever seen a, a, a toddler walking for the first time? How they do? A little shaky? They never fall down, though, do they? Mm -hmm. Because they believe. They haven't lost hope yet. We, we drill that into them, by the way. We do it because we want discipline and control of our environment. But they don't know that if I fall down, that doesn't mean I can get back up. Almost like riding a bicycle. You know how hard it is to ride a bicycle, learn how to ride a bicycle without ever falling off of it? When I was teaching John how to ride a bike, he kept saying, I'm afraid, I'm afraid I might fall off. And I said, well, you're going to fall off. <laughs> I mean, I don't know anybody who ever learned how to ride a bike and didn't fall off. The trick is to know where to fall. <laughs> fall on the grass, don't fall on the concrete. I mean, everybody falls. There's, and, and it's not just riding bikes or walking. It's like that in, in business, in our careers, in, in our you know, finances, in our relationships. If we never step out of our comfort zone and make that extra effort that, yes, brings some inconvenience and, yes, brings some suffering and, yes, you know, makes things life hard for us, then we never really grow. 
you know, one of the things that I always worry about with couples is when, if they've been together very long, is when I say, um, so tell me about when you fight. Oh, we never fight. I think I stun them. So I always say, that's too bad. <laughs> and they go, what do you mean that's too bad? I said, well, that's too bad because if you never fight, one of you is not being honest. Now, that's different than when you've been married for so long that you already have done all the fights and you know how they end, so you just jump to the end. <laughs> you're still having the fight. You're just fast-forwarding it because you already know how it turns out. But that's why we were created for relationships. That's why we have friends that both inspiring and encourage us and, and friends that frustrate us. Because it helps us to grow. That's you know, that old thing about the, the people who pray for patience. You've got to be careful about praying, praying for patience because if you keep praying for patience, God will give you someone to teach you patience because they will try it more than you can possibly imagine. That's how you learn it. There is no other way. What we'd really like is for God to be Santa Claus and sort of zap it into our head, wouldn't we? But it doesn't happen that way. And so we in Lent can take up this tool of giving glory to God and rejoicing in our suffering. And we all have them in different things. Or we could do what the Israelites did in today's Old Testament lesson. Where is God anyway? You know, we're thirsty. It's out here in the desert. How long is he going to leave us? I thought you said he was taking us to the problem. It's almost like being in a long road trip with a bunch of kids. Are we there yet? How much longer? I mean, you know, and then they start fighting with each other. And I mean, it's, it's, it's almost like you can't get there. And it's because they don't see beyond what's in front of them. They don't have the hope that's out there. And so what they end up doing was complaining about it. And then what did Moses do? He complained too, right? Isn't that amazing? And then, we didn't read the rest of that story, Moses strikes the rock. There's still a pool there. There's a mosque over it now in Jordan. Um, and Moses strikes the rock, and you know what happens? No, nothing. <laughs> he taps the rock. So he taps it again. You know what happens then? Zip. Now imagine this. You're Moses. Red Sea parted, manna from the wilderness. I mean, all this, Ten Commandments, all this stuff. People are complaining. They want water. You go to God. God says, go strike a rock. And you go strike, and zip. Makes you look kind of dumb, doesn't it? And so Moses gets angry, and he slams a staff on the rock, and it cracks open. And he got water. He was also told that because he became angry and didn't trust the Lord as God, he would never enter into the promised land. Because he'd forgotten the hope. If God told me to do this, then it will be. It'll be okay. Do we want to be like that? The people who are willing to settle for the short-term pleasure so that we can avoid you know, any kind of inconvenience or pain or, or trauma in our life? Or are we going to be people who rejoice in our suffering? Knowing that suffering produces endurance, 
endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us because of God's love that has been poured into us. That's the hallmark of what you need for a Lenten journey. Because like Jesus, we're halfway through Lent, and I'm sure you're tired of it too, especially when it comes this way. You know, we're tired of looking at our brokenness. We'd really kind of like life to get back to normal. But if we do that, we don't push that envelope. We don't grow. We don't develop our character. And we lose hope. And you see it all around you. You see it in kids who don't bother to try at school because there's no hope. You see it in relationships that people give up on because there's no hope. You see it in you know, the homeless and the, and the people who are on drugs because there's no hope. And all too often we see it in ourselves because what we want is not to rejoice in our sufferings. We want somebody to fix the problem. But I'll tell you, even if you fix the problem for them, you can repair it right now, but you have stolen their character and you have stolen their hope. If we are going to help people, then we have to help them learn how to rejoice in the suffering. We have to do the things that will enable them to build the endurance, that will produce the character, that will give them hope. Because if we have hope, We can do all things through God who is in us. Amen. You have been listening to Come and See by Father Ron Baird. Come and See is a production of St. Andrew's Church in Lewis Center, Ohio. St. Andrew's is also available online at www.standrewspolaris.org. Please join us again when we invite you to Come and See.